you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 as you're turning there. Uh, for those who maybe were a little late arriving, we uh, want to state again that um, this uh, is, as far as we know, our last Sunday meeting in this facility. Uh, the Lord has been good and gracious in granting it. Um, next week we will be over at what we know of as the Cornerstone facility. Um, I know that as a church, uh, we will need to have an official vote on that, uh, and we are aware of that. We're planning on doing that on uh, June the 11th, uh, so just so much going on next week. We're trying to make the transition. Uh, we actually will have our members meeting that we didn't have this past Sunday. We will actually have it uh, immediately following the service on June the 11th and have a meal there. Um, and we just want to encourage you to come. And if you are not yet uh, um, a member of Oak Valley, uh, we want to invite you to come and celebrate with us and be there and be a part of that members meeting and be a part of that lunch, and we'll give you some more details uh, uh, as we move along with that. Uh, we are going to meet over there this afternoon uh, around 3 o'clock and begin uh, trying to get ready to make, uh, to make that Oak Valley's home. And so... Uh, we're excited about that and uh, grateful to God for his goodness uh, in those things. You know, for those who do turn to Christ, they are not confounded. We sang, uh, turn, uh, turn your eyes toward Jesus. And then just before that, we heard that those who turn to him are not confounded. That may be a strange word for us. What does it mean to be confounded? Uh, in that context, it means that they will not bear the wrath of God, will not be judged, they'll not be confused. That life becomes clear uh, in eternity and clear now. We began nine weeks ago. Uh, we said that Peter was addressing, and we said this over and over again, and I think you'll get this. If, uh, we'll, we'll get it after 16 weeks. You probably know what I'm getting ready to say. Uh, that these are sovereignly saved Strangers to this world who are sovereignly scattered, who suffer for who they are in Christ. What we've been saying is, is that followers of Jesus Christ should expect their lives to be different than the world around them as much as they will look different than those of a different country and a different culture. So if you've ever traveled outside of this country and you've been in a different culture, it just is strange. It's strange. The language is different. The culture is different. The customs are different. Um, that is how a believer is in the context of this world. We are living between two worlds. Now for sure, these differences should be noticeable, and in a large part are. And in some cases, these differences are appreciated. I have been in places where it was cross-cultural here in this culture and you responded in a certain way and people appreciated it and the reason that you responded in the way that you responded was because Christ is in you if you're a believer. And, and it has been it is something that is appreciated. Maybe misunderstood a lot of times, but certainly appreciated at times. But there are other times where it is despised and unappreciated. And the world's responses will vary. But Peter knew that for his audience and 
the audience of this letter for the larger part of church history, the differences have resulted in persecution. And that's the point. That's the point. Peter is preparing a people for persecution. They're already in it. He's preparing them. The Holy Spirit is preparing them on how to walk through it. That's important for us today. It's important for us. Uh, I read an article not too long ago uh, by Dr. Todd uh, M. Johnson. He's professor of global Christianity uh, and missions at Gordon Cromwell. And this is what he said. Christian persecution has captured the imagination of the media. Mostly because of the tragedy occurring in the Middle East. Stories of struggling Christians have been highlighted in The Economist, the Boston Globe, the Republic, and the BBC. And here's what he said. It estimate that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia. Have been martyred. Have died for their faith. More than half of which died in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes. And they also estimated that one million Christians were killed between 2001 and 2010 and almost a million between 2011 and 2020, and those numbers are continuing to increase. Being persecuted or killed for their faith. Why do I mention this? We really have a hard time conceiving the idea of persecution and martyrdom for our faith in Jesus. We hear about it. I just read an article about it. Some of you have copies of uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you don't have it, I'd encourage you to get it. Uh, I pick it up and I read it. And I read it at night, which is, I don't recommend for everyone, but I read it at night because it allows me to lay down knowing that I have been blessed by God to lay down in a place where that has not been a reality for me. I have not been hung. I have not been burned at the stake. I have not had concrete blocks and metal and stuff tied around my neck and be thrown off the end of a pier. I have not been crucified in the real sense physically. There may be at least three reasons why we have a hard time getting our minds around it. First, most of us have grown up in uh, a primarily culturally Christian environment to some degree. And, and there, there's, there's a remnant of that. That, that, that culture still kind of lingers around a little bit. It's, it's going away. It's going away. But it, it kind of lingers around. Some of us may be professing Christians and our lives just don't look much different than the culture in which we live. Or at least it doesn't look that way when we're in the culture. In other words, it'll look one way on Sunday when we gather or if we're gathering in another group of believers. But it, it, it really looks more like the rest of the world uh, at other times. There may be another reason, and that is because we live isolated lives. In other words, we isolate ourselves from the world and from the culture. And there is a part that we are not living in the world in the sense that we are a, a 
part of it in that way. But we really can't influence the world. We can't make a difference in the lives of people if we don't, if, if we don't get with them. That, that, that was the whole thing with the Pharisees and the scribes with Jesus, wasn't it? Is that he was hanging out with sinners. He was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He was having meals with sinners and tax collectors. The very people that the religious leaders would never even think about hanging out with. What are we trying to say? Well, we're trying to say that followers of Jesus are being persecuted every day. And we're not yet. But they're being persecuted every day. Some for their boldness and their proclamation of the gospel and the threat that it brings to those who are in power and authority. And some are killed because they refuse to practice the religious rituals of their culture. And then some are persecuted just because they're, they're known to be Christians. Remember, these are sovereignly scattered believers who have a purpose. We found out what that purpose was and we want to go back and look at it. But in 1 Peter 2, but you, verse 9, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. And as we saw last week, the primary characteristic that matches the proclamation of the gospel is submission. Submission. Last week we looked at the definition of submission. I want to rehearse that again for us so we can understand because we're going to deal with it uh, in a specific way this morning. So what is submission? Submission is to arrange in formation under the commander. To walk under in rank. To recognize who's in charge. But the point Peter is making in each of the relationships, and I said this last week, is that he addresses it in a way that is not looking at the authority of the emperor only and not looking at the authority of the master only. And as we'll see this week, and not looking at the role in the authority of the husband only, but seeing all of those lined up under the supreme authority, and that is God. And that is the reason why when we see submission, we see humility that is connected with that. Because when we are looking at all of these other authorities, we recognize they are not God. They are only sovereignly placed there by God. They are not Christ. They are not just. They are not righteous. They are sinful. So in humility, when we look to God, when we look to God, we, we understand who He is. We honor Him. So we submit to Him because we honor Him because of who He is. And then as we begin to submit to the authority that He has placed under Him, we move in that with the spirit of humility. We move into it with a spirit of humility. We said that submission is the permanent or the preeminent mark of the work of God's grace in a believer's life. And, and as we saw last week, it is fundamental to our influence in the world. And while submission is the word, 
The submission is driven, as we said, by honor uh, and by humility. And then last week we saw that for us to be witness in the world, we're to submit to two things. The civil authority. Remember we said that Peter uh, uh, didn't give an out on that. He wasn't giving us a, a set of rules of when you can and when you can't. He just said that as we are in Christ, we submit to civil authority. I've thought about that again this week. Why he did not give us an out. Because we are already quickly looking for outs because submission is so uncharacteristic and humility is so uncharacteristic of who we are. So much so that when we see the person who walks and moves and serves in humility, it immediately catches our eye, doesn't it? There's some of you in here that work and serve and move. Many of you. But there's some who just stand out. And we know. And, and, and I, I will say this as your pastors. We know because we see that. And we see how just such an humble spirit. It stands out because it's so uncharacteristic of who we are. And then he says, not only do we submit to civil authority, but then he went straight to the workplace. Again, he directed his instruction to the servant the most marginalized in society. Why? Well, if he is going to address these things, he is going to address them to those who are most vulnerable. And what would that mean for all the rest? If the expectations are laid out with the most vulnerable, then no one else could look and say, there is a way out of this. If the most vulnerable are called on in this way, then everyone else falls under these same expectations. What does he say? He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. No way out. No out. And that brings us to our text this morning. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's listen to it together. Likewise, pointing back to submission, pointing back to humility, okay? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, back to husbands, likewise, submission and humility, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
right out of the gate, Peter turns his attention to the most vulnerable. To the one who is most likely, most likely to be abused. The one who is most likely to be persecuted. He turns his attention to who? The wives. Christian women who are married. Believers who are married. I want you to pay attention to this, and I didn't pick up on this until after I'd read it five or six times. Peter did not talk to someone else about the wives. He addressed the servants, and now he talks to the wives. What do you suppose that means? It means that they are equal in the sight of God. He's not having to find someone else to intervene. The Spirit of God is speaking directly to these women, and He begins there because they are the most vulnerable. Now what I hope we see today is not look at this men in any way as finger-pointing time to wives, whether, they be, whether that be good or bad. What we need to see in the course of this is that some of the same things in the same spirit, in the same heart, and the same care, and the same attention that he is giving to wives the most vulnerable is spread out over everyone, but he does not do it in a way that diminishes the role of the wife, the woman, or the role of the husband, the man. He doesn't diminish that, but he is helping us see how the heart of a believer, as we sang earlier Christ has granted these things for us, has called us to these things, has empowered us, enabled us. The sanctifying process brings that about in our life so that this spirit that is being talked about and displayed is something that is, is it can happen. It supernaturally, as Adam said, it supernaturally happens because the Spirit of God working in conjunction with the Word of God in our lives brings us to a place that when we turn our eyes to Jesus and we see His humility, we can't help with the Spirit of God in us but to begin to gravitate and move toward that. And yes, there is resistance to it. I know it in my own life. There is resistance to it. But listen to what he said. He says, wives, the very next thing he says, be subject. Be subject. Likewise, be subject. Likewise, be submissive to your husbands. And here's why. Your greatest witness is going to be seen in your humility and in your submission. That is your greatest witness. Remember, these are, these are sovereignly saved strangers scattered who are being called to suffer and the purpose for their existence in this world by God's design is they are His ambassadors, His children, they are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has brought them out of darkness into His marvelous light. In other words, there is the proclamation of the gospel, there is the influence of the world, and here in the home, notice that the influence seems to be pointing toward to even those 
who are married to unbelievers. Even those who are married to unbelievers. In other words, the greatest witness, the greatest opportunity to see the gospel borne out or the gospel come to bear or the gospel to even come to the heart and become real in the life of the home is when that submission is in place. Now I know submission is a strange and a hard word. I'll just share this. Back some years ago, a friend of mine, not a real close friend, but a friend then and now, a young man, uh, he called me and wanted to know if I would consider um, being a part of and participating in his wedding. Uh, he'd not been engaged very long, and they were planning, trying to, trying to get everything together. They were not believers. I knew they were not believers. They were not professing believers, but I wanted an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And for whatever reason, in the course of this, they wanted the church to be a part of it in as much as they were calling a pastor. There was something about, they, they did not want just a, in quote unquote, in their mind, a civil union. They wanted a pastor to be a part of it. And I said, yeah, this is an opportunity for me to just spend some time with them and talk with them about Christ and who he is uh, and share the gospel. So I, I told them we would. I said, but now you have to do something. And they said, what's that? I said, I want you to read a book and you're going to have to meet with me several times and they consented and said yeah and we started our meetings and it was a great relationship that was being established he was a commercial fisherman uh, she was a surgeon uh, down at uh, New Hanover and uh, so we began to meet and we got to the point where I gave them some homework gave them an assignment and I shared with them some passages that I wanted them to go read so that they would understand the biblical role of a husband and wife and the man and the woman. And so we met that next session afterwards. And it was like somebody had thrown a bomb into the middle of all of it. Because she had come across this word of submission and being subject to her husband. And in her mind, she could not even begin to fathom that. I graciously tried to help her understand what it meant. But she said, I can't get past that word and the idea of submitting to someone. And I said, you submit to someone every day. I said, you submit to the hospital administrator every day. You submit to the chief of surgeons every day. In her mind, she was going to become chief of surgeons. <laughs> she was out to make it to the top. And she had felt along the way that she had had to work harder, do more to get to where she was. And she could not even begin to understand what this was. And I get it. I get it. She was an unbeliever. She had no concept for the idea of walking in humility and in submission. I could tell that there was strain and struggle. Uh, I got a call from the young man's mother said, I think they probably want to get someone else. I said, well, I hate to hear that. And for all of you who have some Methodist ties, they said, we're going to go to the Methodist preacher. <laughs> and they did. And he got them married. So what does it mean for the wife to submit to her husband? What does that mean? Wayne Grudem and John Piper defined it in this way in their book, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. 
Nancy, I think I gave you that book one time for a while when we were working through some things, I think. Uh, but it's a sizable work, but a really good work. But this is what they said. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Did you hear that again? Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's not an absolute surrender of her will. They said, rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. That's exactly what Peter's speaking of here. It's not that she's out of control. It's not that this is being lorded over her. She is in humility, willing to submit and subject herself to her husband's role in the home. And it is a God-given means. Listen, notice what it says here. This is the God-given means by which a believing woman will most likely see her unbelieving husband come to faith. That's what it says. Notice. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. In other words, it doesn't mean that the, the gospel is not proclaimed. What it does mean, again, is that Submission and humility matches the work of the gospel that was brought about through a submissive, humble servant, Jesus Christ. That one life in us, in our influence in the world, is most likely to win lives. Remove it, and it makes no difference how hard we preach. It makes no difference how much we shout, remove that, and the likelihood of life change begins to diminish. And I'm not taking that out of the Holy Spirit's hand. He does what He will, but we see that. If this could be accomplished in the home at the very basic level, if it could be accomplished by nagging, if it could be accomplished by preaching, if it could be accomplished by finger pointing, then it would, but that is not the case here. That is not what it says. Peter writes that the greatest and most effective way here is to walk in righteousness. Godly women walking in righteousness before their husbands. It's huge. Notice what else happens here. says that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they, meaning the husbands, see your respectful and pure conduct. That's what it means to walk in righteousness. And then it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of of a gentle and quiet spirit. Notice that Peter writes that the greatest and most effective adornment of a woman is not how good she looks or how well she dresses or the beauty of the jewelry that she wears. 
but it is how she is dressed on the inside. How is that? A gentle and a quiet spirit. What does that mean? That is the embodiment of humility. To be gentle and quiet and peaceable. It doesn't mean to be a, 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 a sole of a shoe. It just simply means that in you looking to God, you rest in Him and in His providence. You rest in Him and in His goodness. And you walk with a gentle and a quiet, caring, kind spirit. Some of you know uh, or remember uh, Mary and Carl Davis. Um, When I was working through this passage, I thought of Mary and Carl. Mary married Carl. She was a believer. He was an unbeliever. Carl never minced any words about professing Christ. Uh, He never kept Mary from going to church and being a part of ministry. She would get up uh, after they, even after they had their one child, Alice, they would get up. Mary and Alice would go to church every Sunday. Carl would either go to the golf course or if the weather was bad and it was raining, he would go to his shop. That was every Sunday. That went on for decades. He would fellowship with Christians around him, but never, never sought to try to act like he was a believer. We would patronize him at his shop. We shared the gospel with him. Janice and I did. We kept a picture of him up in our uh, kitchen window and we prayed for him regularly and we prayed with Mary for him. Uh, But Mary walked before him with a gentle and a quiet spirit day after day after day praying for him, longing to see him come to know the Lord. Carl uh, developed some uh, physical problems began to grapple and think about his own mortality. And then he started coming to church a little bit. And then coming to church a little bit on Sundays began to be he was there every week on Sunday. And he would sit and he would listen to the gospel. And Mary continued to walk before him in a gentle and a quiet spirit and a spirit of humility. And God did his work in Carl's life and he came to know the Lord. I'm convinced today, and Mary had a, Mary's got a fiery streak in her if you know Mary. I am convinced today that if Mary had been the Mary that I have seen at times toward him regarding that, I am convinced that he would have never had a longing to find out what is it about her and what's going on in the course of life as it relates to God that would bring about that kind of a gentle and a quiet spirit. That's what Peter says. And that's what he's saying. Now he's not forbidding dressing nice. He's not forbidding uh, earrings and gold jewelry. He's not forbidding those things. He is just simply saying that those are not the things that are ultimately going to attract your husband to Jesus. You can try it. It'll attract him to a lot of things. But it won't bring him to Jesus. What is it? The way that you're dressed on 
the inside. And notice what it says there. Look, those are the things which in God's sight is very precious. You, you catch that? What, had his, what has he said about his son? He has said that Jesus is precious. And now he is seeing Jesus in her. And he says, and in his sight, this is very precious. Why? Because he is seeing the display of Christ. And when God himself sees the display of Christ in us, man, it is precious to him because he is seeing a picture of his son and his son's influence in the life of believers. Now, I don't think this is restricted to, 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 to wives and women. I think this is to be true of all of us. But specifically here, what Peter has in mind is how in this world the functions of the wife and the function in the context of the family, how that plays out in a way that is influential in the home and influential in the world. The surgeon that I had mentioned could not get her mind around that. She couldn't get her mind around how she could submit at home because all she had in her mind was a context of pride and what she was going to do. But that's true for men as well. That's true for men as well. If pride rules us, if pride winds up ruling us, then we will not be effective in our homes and we're not going to be effective in our lives. Notice what else Peter says. And he's a little bit longer here for the women because they are the most vulnerable. That's why. Okay? Notice what else he says. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. In other words, Christ in you with imperishable beauty, because that is a beauty that does not go away, it doesn't diminish, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, for this is how the holy women who hope in God. Notice the hope that comes in. They hope in God. They trust in God. They rest in God. They lay their lives in the presence of God. They have already submitted to His authority. So then it is not hard for them in humility to lovingly submit because they are giving up themselves and their own will. They're giving it up. Now I want to mention just a few things about what submission isn't in the course of this. And these are not unique with me. If you read any commentaries, you're going to hear some of these. Hear any preachers preach, you're going to hear some of them. I just want, I want us to understand today we heard what it is. Let's talk about what it's not. It doesn't mean that a wife has to agree with everything that her husband says. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that a woman is less intelligent or competent. It doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean they have to kind of leave their brain away. It doesn't mean that they have to avoid trying to change their husband. No, their whole point is, is that they're trying to influence their husband in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. 
It doesn't mean that the uh, wife, as she submits, gets her spiritual strength from her husband. Certainly her husband should be encouraging her. But for those of you who have walked along at times when your husbands were spiritually high or spiritually low, when they were spiritually low, you were not dependent upon them to bring to bear in your life spiritual development and growth. Who were you looking to? You were looking to Christ. You were looking to God's Word. So it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that the wife looks at her husband like he's Christ. He's not. I don't have to tell Janice that. She's reminded of that uh, pretty often during the course of the day. She's around me. He ain't Jesus. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm not. And submission doesn't mean that the wife acts out of fear. In fact, because she trusts in God. And that was Peter's point in pointing back to Sarah. Now, you say, I I, I didn't see Sarah in the course of the Old Testament as being all that great and grand. She didn't look to me like she was a great leader and submissive. The Holy Spirit says here through Peter that she is an example of one who saw her husband and submitted to him by calling him Lord. And she looked to him, not as God, but she looked to him as her leader. And then notice what it says. And you are her children, ladies, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. How how do the two of those do good? How, How do they go together? Well, when we rest and trust in God, when you rest and trust in Him and you submit, as He has called for you to submit, then fear is removed of whatever it is that may come because you are trusting in Him. And the same is true in what Peter is speaking to the rest of these scattered people that you need not fear the harsh master. You need not fear uh, the, the, the communist tyrant. You need not fear the husband that would become abusive or the husband that would seek to persecute you. We need not fear those things. We need not fear those things. Why? He's pointing us back again because God Himself has sovereignly saved, sovereignly scattered you and has sovereignly called you to suffer. Paul assumes in this passage that by the very fact that this woman is a Christian that she has in this particular case greater spiritual insight than her husband. And yet she submits to Him using her gifts. Now, let's look at verse 7. Likewise, likewise, submission and humility, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And then there is a statement here, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
I wonder how many of us struggle with walking with our wives in an understanding way. Wives, I wonder how you would say, does your husband walk with you in an understanding way, being sensitive to your thoughts, sensitive to what you are encountering and dealing with, knowing you well enough to know what is, uh, what those triggers are for you, and showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. What does that mean? Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Just realizing in most cases, and not, not, not weaker mentally, not weaker intellectually, just being the one who cares for because you realize and know that by and large the woman physically, physiologically, is a weaker vessel. In other words, honor in such a way to care for like men should care uh, for women. Like a husband should care for his wife. That's what Peter is saying here. This is, again, the way that, the way that humility is demonstrated. The way that submitting to the care of the home is demonstrated. And notice why since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now back up in chapter 1, and we'll understand that we are heirs together. Notice back up in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable talking to all believers, men and women. And so the husband looks at his wife and realizes in the course of this that spiritually they are equal before God and salvation and the work of God in Christ. They are equal. We are heirs together. And so he seeks to keep that in mind and seeks to encourage that. And then... Notice what Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Prayers together, prayers for what? It's not clear. We won't deal with it here. We'll deal with it in a later text. But Peter three or four times brings up this issue of prayer. There is something about the way we carry ourselves in our home that has a bearing upon how we pray, has a bearing upon our heart and our spirit as we come before God and pray. It has a bearing. I, I can tell you this, when things get thick at our house, I am least likely in that moment to be one, even in my own heart at that time, I am not humble-spirited, but pride has raised up in me. And I am not quick then to in humility to fall before God and to pray. Have my prayers been hindered? Yeah, they've been hindered. When are they unhindered? They're unhindered when my spirit begins to get calm and quiet and I realize I need to get before God and deal with this. This is not becoming of His Son. Does that make sense? 
Now here's what I know. We're going to wrap this up. Here's what I know. We have no perfect marriages in here. We have no perfect homes. They, they don't exist. Okay? There may be some that are better than others today, but we have no, we have no perfect family relationships here. But the thing that Peter is reminding us, the Holy Spirit is reminding us through Peter, that the way that we influence the world is to walk in humility. And I am not likely going to walk in humility out in the world if I'm not walking in humility in my own home. Does that make sense? I ask you, how many of you struggle with pride? How many of us at times think we're smarter than everybody else? How many of us at times think that we have it figured out? How many of us at times when someone pushes against us that our first response is, is oh no you're not buddy. Oh no you're not. I'm going to straighten you up right now. You know what that is? That is pride. That is pride. And there is no place for pride in our walking in Christ for His glory or before this world to influence this world. There is no place for that in any arena of our life. Most especially in our homes. Will you pray with me? Father, Your Word is clear and direct toward us. Admittedly, Father, I'm, I am grateful, uh, but at times it is painful. Such is the case today. Painful because I'm reminded of my own pride. Painful because I know there are people in here that have encountered that with me and in me uh, in our relationships. I know, Father, where it will lead me and I know where it will lead us. I know that it will keep us apart instead of bringing us together. And I know ultimately, Father, when we are apart, then we are no different than the rest of the world and the culture around us. And therefore, we look like them and we don't look like you. Father, would you work in us in such a way that we would be proud and in a, in, a, in a right kind of pride to face persecution because our lives look different. That what is a sweet aroma to you becomes a stench to everybody else around us and help us to know that that is okay. Because Father, just as you said about uh, the, the lady and her adornment and her gentle and quiet spirit, and they're most precious to you. Father, we long to be seen by You as being most precious when You see the Spirit of Your Son at work in us and then we look like Him 
as you sanctify us. Father, would you grant that to take place in each of us here today at a whole other level than it has been before. And then, Father, for those here who've not yet trusted you, Father, would you grant them to turn to Christ and look to him today? There may be some who, Father, that you have been working in their hearts and said, but I'm not as good as this person or, or I don't look like that person. Would you help them to see that they don't have to look like anybody but just long to look like Christ? And then help us in humility to stop and to pause and to get before you. Would you do that work in us today for your name's sake and your glory in Christ's name? Amen.